0: with this like cultish uh, personification of folks like Robin DiAngelo is that her ardent followers are trained not to see any flaws in her worldview. That's called a cult. It's called a cult. (laughs) There is evil at work in the land to the west, Prince Ashitaka. It's your fate to go there and see what you can see with eyes unclouded by hate. And we're back. Welcome to another episode of Eyes Unclouded. Today I am with... Anthony Eichberger, did I get that right? Did I say that right? Yeah, a lot of people okay. botch
1: it up, but you got it perfect.
0: Wow, that doesn't <laughs> happen usually. Usually I'm the one to botch it up. Anthony, how the heck are you? Oh,
1: a lot of my plate, but that's what always the plate. case. So nothing new there.
0: <laughs> for sure. And where where are you speaking to me from?
1: Oh, I well, I live in West Central Wisconsin, the um, okay. town where I grew up. Um, I lived in LA for about a decade of my life, so, but that was a little while back. So, And you're in San Diego, right? That's right correctly?
0: San Diego, born and raised. We were you sort were... of
1: neighbors there for a while, but ah, yeah. probably weren't podcasting yet at that point. So,
0: <laughs> Do you mind giving yourself an introduction, uh, perhaps, yeah, I can, what, what yeah. you're bringing to the table today? Sure. I mean,
1: I probably the biggest thing, one of the biggest things in my life right now that I'm focusing on, and we don't have to talk in depth about this, is uh, sustainable agriculture is what my public awareness campaign is on. And there's so many um, we can kind of touch upon it if you're interested in it. But we um, there's so many uh, intersections between you know agricultural sustainability and social justice issues. So I really I'm very intrigued by all of the uh, the untapped potential and the unexplored intersections there. I run a public awareness campaign that I'm trying to get off the ground. So it's nothing fancy yet, but it's called the Regis Initiative. Uh, it stands for raising, eating, growing, inventing, sustaining. Um, And so that's one of my areas, but I also, as you know already, I'm a writer on Medium, so I wouldn't necessarily call it a formal column, but through my Medium writing, I try to uh, confront in new and fascinating ways uh, a variety of different issues, including but not limited to social justice, um, you know, that I feel passionately about or that I feel there needs to be uh, additional discussion on. So my presence on Medium will hopefully grow.
0: In this, I've
1: only been on the platform for three months so far.
0: Oh, okay, only three months. Well, yeah. while well, I was reading through your articles and before we re- recorded this, and I wanted to mention this quote, which I think is a good uh, diving point into the rest of our conversation, and also sort of the ideology behind this whole podcast. And you, yeah. you are stating here, and I'm forgetting which article this is from, but it goes, "I feel no guilt." for any of what makes me who I am. I feel no guilt for any of what makes me who I am, which I think is a great point. I make room for people who happen to belong to the same quote groups as me, even if their ideologies differ from my own. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, what I was trying to get at there in the piece that you're talking about was, I was called Ike's De- Declaration of Independence. So it was my 4th of July piece this year, where with all the talk of you know, privilege and power and social justice issues and intersectionality, I was trying to frame it in a way where I'm acknowledging, you know, what areas where I'm aware of what areas of life I have, I possess privilege, but also the areas in which I'm disadvantaged. So, you know, if people looked at me, they'd be able to tell, you know, that he, you know, he's white, he's biologically male. um, He's now some people consider age to be a privilege whether you're young or middle-aged or old. I think that's kind of a, it's kind of a mixed bag there. We can get into that a little bit later. Um, I'm a cisgender person. So those are very obvious areas of privilege. And then also, you know, the fact that I'm, a lot of people aren't college educated and I am, Um, you know, I I live in a country where um, aside from being a citizen, um, linguistically, I speak the native language and that's not the K or the, I speak the predominant language at least. and that's not always the case, depending on where you live globally or even in the U.S. But if you look at it, when you look at intersectionality, there are a lot of areas of life where people, just from glancing at me, they wouldn't necessarily know that there I've I've faced disadvantage in many categories. The fact that I'm gay, the fact that I have a disability, you know, I don't necessarily conform to gender roles or gender norms. I talked about constructionism in that same article, um, social constructionism, where We relate people relate to um, how they you know how they relate to other people is often based on perceptions of what a man is supposed to be or what a woman is supposed to be. So you know those are some examples there. Um, You know there there are a lot of different uh, little things in life, but those little things add up. Whether they're you know does someone have allergies? Do they have dietary restrictions? Um, They have uh, mental illness because too often we think of uh, disability only in terms of physical. Uh, disability rather than uh, mental disabilities or invisible disabilities. So although I'm not deaf, nor am I blind, nor do I am I an amputee, I do have, uh, I was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome when I was uh, 14, what used to be known as Asperger's syndrome. So now they'd call it just Hmm. autism spectrum, but I am on the autism spectrum. I'm on the, according to doctors, I'm on the higher functioning end of it, Mm -hmm. but still something that has had a huge impact the, on the way people perceive me or interact with me, even when they don't know up front. even, and for so much of my life, that's something that I hid for myself. So sexuality and disability have been two very big things, even though they're um, as some people would call them mutable. I mean, that's the whole point of intersectionality is there are things that make us all diverse and distinctive from one another that we don't readily know. And you have to get to know someone before you can learn that about them. So we, sh- you know, my whole philosophy is we should be conscious of, the you know the visible stuff the race and gender and sex etc but we should also be conscious of things that we that aren't necessarily apparent because those can have big roles in people's lives too and the piece the piece you cited was just mm-hmm. kind of scratching the surface you know my own reflection on you know I'm not going to feel sorry for myself that I've been disadvantaged in certain ways but at the same time I want to you know I want to make life better for people who experience similar um, adversity in their lives. And the same thing, I'm not gonna feel on the same by the same token, I'm not gonna feel guilty for having privilege, but I am gonna look at are there ways in which I could use privilege to um, help the lives of other people or to make those help make those systemic
0: changes. So you're not gonna feel guilty about using privilege. See, hearing you talk is like reading one of your articles and we said this (laughs) offline. Sorry, I said, no, 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 let me no no no, because well it's sort of like a 50-50 point. We know when I read one of your articles, I'll read a paragraph and I'll be like, you know what? Yes, I agree with this. And then suddenly it's like, whoa, wait, no, I disagree with that. And then it's like, oh, wait, yeah. I agree with this. It's like it's a roller coaster for me. It's hilarious. I, that's what I really enjoy reading that. There's very few um, – Yeah um articles or essayists who i've read lately where it's like it's toying with my my proclivity to agree and disagree and it's like i can't get a grip of this and it's i really it's really entertaining so you've already said like 14 things that i really want to prod at and poke at but then you also say a lot of very strong points that i do agree with and one of the main things is that you don't feel you you're not overburdened with this guilt and shame and when i speak out about my rants about this the, the woke ideology being right explained today it's like here's things that you're lucky to have shame on you for having it like in it's like oh you're white well you should be ashamed you should expel i mean you saw my white privilege video though the robin d'angelo yep. thing that was just my whole five and a half minute rant about like i'm sick of having to feel being told that i should be ashamed for being lucky in any way shape or form it's like I didn't ask for this and I'm trying my best to use what I have to 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 bring value to people's lives with with podcasts with videos with court with blog posts with courses uh, mm-hmm. which is why I'm opposed to privilege walks so we could we could we, let's spend some time on this privilege slash intersectionality sure. discussion here because this is really interesting so you, you don't feel I mean, shame, but you want to leverage it.
1: Well, yeah, Tarana Burke was on, I believe it was the talk on CBS that she was on several weeks back. And she, um, for those of your listeners who may not know who she is, Tarana Burke um, was an instru- instrumental leader in what eventually became the Me Too movement. Everyone credits Alyssa Milano for tweeting about it originally, but it was based on Tarana Burke's social social justice work and she said something very profound I should have grabbed the quotation and I apologize that I didn't but the rest of her quotation was you know not about feeling and I'm paraphrasing here it's she said it's not about feeling guilt or shame when one has privilege it's recognizing when you have it and looking at how you can use that to make people's lives better because that's what it's there for right and I heard that and I thought to myself. and uh, by the way, I'll just give a. I haven't read it yet, but I did purchase her book. She titled it, she wrote a book called You Are Your Own, uh, You Are Your Best Thing. Okay. Um, and I'm looking forward to reading it later this summer or fall. You are your
0: best thing. I always
1: have this huge list of books I <laughs> don't we all <laughs> ever get around to reading. But yeah. I thought to myself, yeah, that's she, she's absolutely right when she says that. And that's something that someone like Robin D'Angelo really could learn from. Yeah. Because as, as you've covered in your, you know, the video that you put together, and I'm sure in yeah. other discussions elsewhere um robin d'angelo she's real i i I know this is going to sound crude and blatant but she's really a snake saleswoman snake oil saleswoman
0: yeah 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 i completely agree this fucking scammer well
1: yeah well and i think she knows what she's doing too which is why she she
0: definitely does she's well aware of it yeah yeah yeah
1: there was i forgot the gentleman but he wrote a piece in the new york times he attended one of her um her seminars i guess about how to be less white (laughs) okay (laughs) that is the most vapid way to to market which i understand what she's trying to say she's trying to say let's dismantle whiteness or the, the whites how white supremacy is yeah. ingrained yeah. that's a noble cause i agree with her about that element but the way she's going about it is she's treating people like kindergartners yeah you know, know. and then she or she won't allow constructive dialogue during her and this is. Well, I haven't attended any of her ser- her uh, seminars, and I have no intention of attending them. But the the gentleman who wrote the piece back for the New York Times a while ago this was these were his observations. Yeah. Like, at one point, tried to interject and ask her an intellectual question, and she she basically shut him down because oh. as Judge Judy would say, it's her playpen. That was Robin Dangela's playpen. So <laughs> I have to admit, I have not read White Fragility yet, but I it's on my list. I'm I'm dreading it just because I <laughs> other pieces. Yeah. So I know what I'm in for, but I, a hard I have read. to. So I can no, so I can write a a piece where I say, okay, here's some good points she's raising, but here's the flaw because I've I've heard it all before. Sure. When I began D'Angelo's work, none of it was surprising to me, and but it's I just find that whole approach disgusting, and then other people, especially liberal white people, they venerate her as yeah. this gold. Of social justice and yeah. wokeness, yeah, and it's, the whole thing is ridiculous. And if any of your, uh, if you get back on Medium at any point, or if your listeners are on Medium, I, I would um, highly recommend uh, Steve QJ. That's his pen penalt- his uh, pen name on Medium. He wrote a fantastic piece a couple weeks back, and I think the piece was the you could search for it on Google. But the title was something like uh, Robin D'Angelo is the Vanilla Ice of social justice or so, something justice or something like that yeah. and he wrote a very concise piece the one i write is probably gonna be longer but but steve you know he's he's black so he's a person of color criticizing her and now we've gotten to the point where people who are part of the d'angelo cult as i call it because you know john McWhorter, when he taught he, when he criticizes her he, he calls it a religion oh yeah that type of reality. not just her but people like tim wise and debbie irvine and others some of these people are white, by the way. They're, they're white liberals. Yeah, but they're, yeah. They're yeah, yeah. But they're half of this whole cult. And uh-huh. I call it a cult because, to me, that's, it's, you know, when- Well, it is Dr. a cult
0: because, because part of being a, in a cult, it's like you're expunging deeply embedded evil within you in a public format, which we've seen, I've seen clips- of people in these public gatherings trying to expound like release their racist and white whatever that means Tendencies in the public format and like barf at so all. In other
1: words, it's, it's about them. It's it's about them It's not about the system. Well, it's they incredibly say they wanna...
0: narcissistic. It's like you want to make social <laughs> yeah. change. Stop focusing on yourself all the damn time But that's how
1: they make their money. Oh, so I, I mean and they need, their, they need their lemmings to so you know I say Dr. McWhorter, he's very generous. He, he's very more gentlemanly than I would be when he says it's a religion. I say it's a cult. That's just me. Um, sure. So, and, and again, they're not the only ones. There are many academics who, who say and do things like this in their writings. I'm just kind of touching upon some of the more, more prominent ones. Uh-huh. It, then it seeps into higher education, which is, I think, where the all the controversy with critical race theory is coming in, because, um, you know, we were talking before the show a little bit about how I was saying how these two sides these two binary sides of this critical race theory debate they like go into their separate corners and then they dig in their heels and they won't budge from their perspectives because they believe the core philosophy behind what they're saying is so um, you know indisputable even though they're willing to a lot of them are willing to have those uh, intellectual debates so what I try to do is kind of, I try to thread together the elements that I see that are valid from both of those sides, because I do. I, you know, I think there are a lot of systemic problems, not just with race, but definitely including race that we sure. have to deal with and rectify. But then the question becomes, how do we do that? What are the solutions? They, a lot of times they kind of gloss over what the solutions are and they focus on, you know, the, the, Repenting.
0: Well, I would say that that. Well, I would push back and say that I do hear solutions being proposed by either side, and it's usually a solution related to s- systems and institutions related to power, and that's the leftist view. And then I hear from the more conservative types that the the, the solutions are at an individual, and this is the stance that I take to some degree, mm-hmm. uh, at an individual level, because individuals constitute systems uh, and institutions of power. I I would I, agree
1: with that the, that part of what you said because. Sure. Um, months ago, it was before the presidential election, a few weeks before, uh, Alicia Garza, um, one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, she went on The View.
0: Yeah,
1: She's one of the things, I mean, they had a five, seven minute segment, however long it was, but one thing she said was, and I understand what she was trying to say, but I think she went about it the wrong way. She said, racism is not about individuals. And I think what she was trying to say is, she, like a lot of people, she was trying to um, shed more light on in, center the emphasis on systemic racism
0: Mm
1: -hmm. because it's true that there it's built into the system but like you said individuals continue to perpetuate that so no alicia it is about individuals because you have the individuals who are keeping these racist systems alive and then you also have the racism that occurs outside of the systems too in the social and cultural realms Mm -hmm. necessarily you know supported by governmental institutions Mm -hmm. so if I wanted to kind of just delineate for you how I encourage people to look at racism. Um, and by the way, I'll preface this by saying people would tell me I have no business commenting on this because I'm white. Oh, bullshit. You can ignore them. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of frame for you. So I look at racism in subcategories. Um, that's how I believe we should be, especially when teaching kids about um, race consciousness. I think we should be looking at it in terms of uh, three basic subcategories, systemic, cultural, and social. So systemic is obviously what Black Lives Matter is focusing on. What are the governmentally um, pushed policies um, related to, you know, uh, after, after slavery was abolished, reconstruction, and Jim Crow laws, and everything that's been baked in that has never really been rectified, that we're still struggling with those problems safely. Those, you know, that's what people are talking about. That's systemic racism. The problem is a lot of these hyper woke people we've been discussing, they have decided to unilaterally hijack the, the term racism, and they want it to refer to only systemic racism. So because apparently those three syllables of systemic are just too burdensome to utter. So hmm. I remember when my first year of college, I read a book by the late Paula Rothenberg, who was a sociologist, um, and she explained that's exactly what she she was she was proposing that they um, simplify uh, systemic racism by referring to it just as racism. And then of course what happens is if something is experienced or happens to any white people that's racially motivated, they'll say, oh, it's just prejudice. And I call bullshit on that because when you have people who are, if they happen to be white and they're, the, they're not just the victim of let's say a hate crime or violence, but even you know little things that happen in the public sphere, no, it isn't the same as systemic racism, but it's still a form of racism because, but for the fact that they're being uh, uh, bullied or harassed due to what their racial identity is, it would not have happened to them otherwise. So that is an iteration of racism, but that's, where, that's what's different where I differentiate systemic versus social racism. Social racism is where individuals are mistreating one another, one another based on their race or based on their perceived racial identity. And then you can get into colorism, which has to do with you know skin tone differences, which is even more um, more honed in than the broader racism. So that's, it's not that, no, if it happens to white people, it is still racism, but it's generally not systemic racism. It's generally social racism. And then the third subcategory that I encourage people to look at and explore would be cultural racism, which would be when group, that's when groupthink comes into it and when groups, Leverage their racial identity or weaponize it against other people based on a contrasting racial identity. So, you know, I don't want to, I, I don't want to be, um, you know, illustrate a caricature and use West Side Story or anything like that as, as the type of uh, prototype for that. But, it, it, you know, it's true that that does you find it in gang violence, but then it works outward, and you find it in other areas of life, um, where you know people they want to f- belong, they want to feel. Part of a particular racial or ethnic identity, but where they fall short, in my view, is you can't, it doesn't really make sense to celebrate, if you want to celebrate your pride, racially or ethnically, you can lift yourself and other members of your group up, but that doesn't mean putting down other people, right? people, but in their view, it does. In their view, you can't have one without the other. Um, I think Ibram Kendi at one point said, you know, the only way to, to, um, and discriminations with more discrimination. Oh, Jesus Christ! Well, I think that's—I understand what he was trying to say. I don't. <laughs> I, but again, I think it falls flat when you when you look at it
0: in a well-rounded. The only fl- way to fight <laughs> violence is with more violence. It sounds like a scene out of South Park. <laughs> it's a line out of South Park.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I think Dr. Candy—he's trying. You know, he's doing what a lot of. Um, folks in social justice are trying to do is to place more emphasis on the systemic. Again, which is fine, you just can't do that at the exclusion of the social and cultural. So the the basic formula is, so they have their formula, the woke, the hyper woke culture. They've decided that racism now means
0: power plus privilege. Right. That's the narrow definition that they're using. It's an accurate depiction, yes. Right,
1: And, and, and first of all, I reject that, and I encourage all rational people to reject that reductionism on their part. Um, what they're, when they say power plus privilege, what they are describing there is systemic racism. That's fine. That's an apt description, but that's one subcategory. You're, there's also social racism and cultural racism when individuals and groups experience it. And it's not necessarily happening in a governmental or institutional venue, but it still happens. It's still a form of racism, even if it isn't systemic. So we really need to de- delineate These ways in which racism can affect people's lives so differently based on the context. That's kind of the summary of it. I apologize for the mouthful.
0: Oh, no, 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 not at all. This is very interesting to hear. Um, I have two questions. One is, have you ever told your ideas related to what we're talking about, uh, your friends, and have they ever dismissed you in any way, shape, or form? You, you mean ever talking happen? about the subcategories
1: of racism?
0: Yeah, by saying, hey, or do you, have you ever had people who, who are, are closely aligned with the woke ideology like completely dismiss you? Like what have been the consequences of, of opening up about your ideas and your thoughts in your life? Well, you know,
1: I found that with friends of mine who are either centrist or sometimes conservative, they'll actually say, oh, I never thought of it that way. Yeah, that, me too. That's the way you're describing it. Um, when people are on the liberal or Progressive end of the spectrum, or at least self-described. Um, I mean, the reactions can be mixed. Some people will say, "Okay, I can see what you're saying." Other people will say, "Well, no, that's not what academic researchers have determined. So, what you're, what I'm saying is not true." I'm not. I'm not a, a member of. I'm not a
0: yes. Because you're not part of the intelligentsia. In yeah well well, i'm very allergic to that i think like putting on a pedestal the ivory tower gods of these Mm. ideas it's like okay well marx was an academic it's like okay you can follow that logic and then suddenly you end up in stalin's russia
1: so a lot of people on the on the hyper woke left will say well that's not what i was told in college when i from this professor or that
0: you have to be told everything in college for it to be true right
1: right exactly so Um, Because we all know professors are all one hundred percent honest about everything, (laughs)
0: right? Right.
1: Um, So you know that. So it it has been a mixed bag. But you know, when you actually when you actually spell out where you're coming from and why you base why I base my um, my philosophies, you know, on this context, I find that more often than not, it does resonate at least somewhat, if not more so. But again, you still have the cult like mentality from people who. They've decided that the new definition of racism is the definition, and right. sticking with that. And then they'll apply it to they'll apply it to sexism. They'll say men can't uh, they'll say men can't experience sexism. Misandry isn't a thing, um, and they'll probably apply it to other um, other isms, regardless of you know what the attribute is. Um, but race and sex tend to be the most prominent ones. So that's kind of why I'm hmm. focusing on them in this moment. Um, so you know that's it's like you know. I, I think higher education can be a really great and valuable thing, but not when it not when it promotes group thought, not when it produces you know mindless drones who yes. just yeah. regurgitate yeah. what they've heard from their professors or from peer-reviewed researchers. And
0: I'm not saying none of it's valuable. Of course, there's there's a lot well, of this 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 from is it. yeah yeah yeah. Well, this this ties into sort of my next question. And I was okay. I was going to ask you where and how you stand on teaching young children about race and why i'm opposed to critical race theories is i'll give you one reason is because i think okay. if you wanted to market an idea to a specific group of people without having any chance of that group of people raising your hand and saying hey i disagree with this you would market that idea to young children because they won't yeah. raise their hand and say hey let's explore the nuances of the subject like you do in a podcast so i uh, I want to hear where you stand on the on this uh, teaching children to be race conscious. And also yeah. that does tie to the point about higher education because higher education, well, by the time you're there, you're like 18 or 20 and you should be able to think for yourself. You're there in higher education to learn how to think for oneself instead of becoming an automaton, a drone that's merely espousing whatever your professor believes in and whatever your peers believe in. You should be encouraged to explore nuance and to have disagreements because nuances and diversity of viewpoints and thoughts is what makes life so beautiful. It's why I do, it's why yeah. I do podcasts. It's why I'm talking to you right now because you and I see things differently. So let's yeah. go back to that question though. Where do you stand on teaching children about race?
1: Well, the first thing I would ask to any K through 12 educators, I'd ask them the, the fundamental question of does is anti-racism mean to you? What does race consciousness mean to you? And let me give you an anecdotal example. Um, And this is, it wasn't an isolated incident. This was a trend I noticed throughout my formative years in grade school, but in fifth grade, I very vividly remember my uh, fifth grade teacher when she she would talk about uh, indigenous genocide, You know, just as part of history, Um, anecdotally, she would say that she'd be like, we stole their land. Now she's referring obviously to a majority of students in the class who are white. Um, the area where I grew up, we had a sizable portion of students who are members of the Ho-Chunk tribe. So we had, you know, there was always anywhere from 10 to 15 percent of the student body was uh, Ho-Chunk or other indigenous tribes. But, you know, that is an example of someone who she's, even if she doesn't realize it, the subtext there is she wants to make white students feel guilty and ashamed based on what happened in history. So I would say to educators, is there a way we can teach um the realities of history, you know, the exploitation and brutality of history without putting the onus on these young grade school kids. Yeah. 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 That's very damaging in my view. Yeah, and I, I agree. I mean, for me, I was smart enough to see through that and not let myself get indoctrinated by it. And I realized, okay, she also has personal problems. So she <laughs> takes out those personal problems on her students, yeah. which teachers do across grade levels. But, um, and that's, again, that's an anecdotal example. So going back to your original question, I mean, you have to make it age appropriate if you do it, but you also have to look at what does the content say? So if we're teaching, so for example, if we're teaching um, older elementary students about slavery and the fact that slavery was wrong, and then as they get older, we can bring in more, more elements whether they're and I haven't studied extensively so I don't know the full scope of the curriculum for the 1619 project I want to learn a lot more about it to get a better informed opinion about it but um if you're looking at things like that and how to integrate them to curriculums yes you can do it and you can do it as people get older and make the content more age appropriate but what I would ask educators is how much of what they're doing is that they want students specifically white students to feel shame or guilt is that part of their explicit, or do they want history to be more uh, taught in a more well-rounded and multifaceted uh, manner? Right. I would, the answer is the latter. And if it is, then I think it's appropriate to look at how those curriculums can be developed. But you also have to be um, mindful of it. You know the unintended effects of it. Right. I mean, I it's, like, it's like look,
0: you me. can't assume that every white kid's ancestors contributed to racial oppression. You cannot assume that. Right. Like, what I am mean, I supposed you... to do? Even if my grandparents, let's hypothetically to sound like Ben Shapiro, let's say if my mm-hmm. grandparents owned slaves or what the fuck have you, I didn't pick my grandparents. What do you want me to do about it?
1: Well, I mean, what we can, what we can do is we can look at what, what areas of life, whether it's education policy, whether it's housing, whether it's police brutality, we can look at how white supremacy continues to play a role and how, it, those, you know, how those policies do disadvantage um, uh, people of color but again you have to do it in a way that it makes se- it's relevant to the curriculum and it's presented in a way you, you know you're going to teach things differently to elementary kids versus middle school kids versus high schoolers Yeah, yeah. yeah. so I don't think it should be totally expunged and that's one sure. you know
0: we should i watch both should, the interviews the good, with... the good and the bad i feel like you, you bring up the good parts of america and the bad parts you have to strike that balance and i do agree that the point shouldn't be to necessarily just to make people feel white people feel guilty or shamed because again but i'm not saying assume... I,
1: people now people would people would tell me oh that i am centering white people's feelings about this well i have a couple of answers to that so first thing is everyone's feelings should matter sure okay? yeah and I'm not trying to say all lives matter because you know I understand why that's an inappropriate phrase you know from my perspective I understand that black lives matter is meant to um to center the systemic experiences of black and brown people and other people of color as well but you know if you're if you're if you're someone who's setting out to purposely and intentionally try to make white people feel bad for being white shows that you're a shitty person if you're doing that that shows that you don't care yeah, that's called racism. People's feelings. So I, I don't like this crutch where people say, oh, well, we can't have these conversations because people's feelings will get hurt. It's like, well, are you, so are you saying that some people's feelings matter more than others within the context of this? I right. mean, why should feelings be at all? If we're teaching history, if we're teaching what happened yeah, from, yeah, yeah. you know, this standpoint, then feelings shouldn't be an issue. So if you're if you're worried about, oh, that white people are going to complain that their feelings are getting hurt. That means somewhere in the back of their head, they have the intent to try to do that and have that manifest within the curriculum. It was mine. It was my end. That's all right. So I was talking about my my high school teacher who taught uh, AP History and Civics. Yeah, yeah. And he was he was fantastic. You know, he 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 allowed you know um, uh, multifaceted debate in his courses. He would be honest with us about his own biases, but at the same time, he would say, you know, I'm trying to, I want to present different ways that people throughout history looked at different issues. So, um, so that's someone, that individual educator is someone who would do better with it. So, you know, it's really, I I think that anyone who's trying to integrate race consciousness or anti-racism or whatever they want to call it into school curriculums, they need to take a long, hard look at themselves in terms of how are they presenting it and what is their end goal? what do they want students to get out of this? And then really, um, if they, you know, if they really uh, are honest with themselves about that, I think the curriculums curriculums can be really beneficial. But but there is the risk, and this is where I understand where opponents of critical race theory are coming from, the risk there is that we could have, you know, the D'Angelo cult gradually seeping its way into these K through 12 curriculums. And so that's what, then you have the backlash, like with Like the desantis legislation or other state level legislation where they say you can't teach race and you can't teach critical or you can't teach critical race theory um it's it's an overreaction to the overreaction if that makes any sense
0: no that does that that does that does make sense that does make sense you should learn about the bad parts of history and the good parts of history and to try to strike that balance i think is, is very useful and it's very hard I do think that we've, here in America, we've been accelerating so quickly these discussions of race that we're doing things like trying to propose anti-racist math curriculum, which I don't understand. What do you think about that?
1: Like, can- I'm just learning a little bit about that. Um, obviously, I'm, obviously, I don't support stopping, you know, ceasing the teaching of mathematical skills themselves. Of course. I do under, and from what little I know about anti-racist mathematics, I do see some value, maybe some limited value, but some value nonetheless in looking at how um, racism embedded within how math has been taught um, throughout. And again, I don't, I'm not well-versed enough to really give a perspective on that, but there could be some value to that. But that's the type of thing that you would put in more of an um, interdisciplinary, like if there are some schools where they where they team teach and they combine different subjects into a team-taught sort of curriculum. That's not every school, of course. Um, so yeah, there can be some, but you still should teach the skills themselves. And then I don't have a mathematics background, so I, I can't- don't either. And it's funny this, for me to but, be
0: speaking out about this, because I don't- Right, really but know. I, would, I would say,
1: you know, if there are, because of the racial disparities in education, um, are, there, um, are there learning processes, are there, you know, uh, teaching approaches that, um, that could be employed when there are are school districts that are neglected because of the racial disparities that exist within those school districts. So I think those issues are maybe the broader overarching issues that people who talk about anti-racist mathematics, they wanna see those solved. And then they just, they take it to a place that's again, it could be a bit overboard. And I I think it's in a very speculative fashion, speculative fashion, because I don't know enough about the anti-racist mathematics curriculum, but that's kind of, that would be my initial assessment of it.
0: Well, I always thought it was—I was definitely overboard, and I always just assumed that math just couldn't ever be taught racistly. And one might say, "Well, you're not—you haven't been trained to see the invisible threads with which you can actually paint math in a racist light." And then I would say, "Well, it's just too damn objective to be painted in a racist light." Let's say, for example, you're not teaching students that a certain equation came from. Um, Egypt or, 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 I mean, again, I'm showing how limited my knowledge is of the origins of math. Or, But I do know, I think, that algebra, wasn't it created by the Babylonians? I probably have that so, sort of right or perhaps sort of wrong. It wasn't made in America. Point yeah. being, it wasn't made in America, that's for sure. But it's like, okay, I can understand teaching children where the origin of, of a particular flavor of math came from, but mm-hmm. okay, sure. But let's just get back to inspiring children, why math is just so powerful and so cool, how, how it can be cool and useful and like how it's changed the world and like what we can do with complicated linear equations and the beauty of it. I've, I hated math in high school, but lately, as I've matured, I've attempted to see the beauty in math and how people are actually invigorated by the study of it. Like, that's what I want to see more of and what I think education can be really useful uh, to do is just to ins- to to get more inspiration out of children, to engage in the natural world around them. I think it it really dilutes the beauty of the natural world when we're just so focused on on the evils of the past. Not that having discussions on the evils of the past is not useful, because I think it's incredibly useful to carry the torch of the past and to discuss things like historical atrocities not even just america but but um in, in europe and russia and and in, in german nazi germany and stalin's russia just real discussions on that too, i think are incredibly useful so a- acknowledging our own historical evils so to speak and then also acknowledging um just the evils of human nature in general i think is very important but that's I my point
1: one, one of the things and this is kind of more broadly speaking to a lot of these intersectional issues beyond just race but where people get into trouble, I think, is the overuse of the words, you know, just, and I'm not accusing you of it, I'm just saying, oh, sure, um, you can. We or us, you know, I think when you're studying history, you have to look beyond we or us and you have to kind of separate yourself from it and say, them, this is what they did, these, this is what these historical figures did or these human populations did in whatever time period. And then if the whole idea is to, av- so that present day people avoid repeating those mistakes. Yeah, yeah. So we're not, you know, I've noticed a lot of defensiveness recently from the pro critical race theory, the pro CRT camp saying, oh, we're not trying to make white people feel guilty or bad or ashamed. Well, maybe that wasn't their intent always, but it's been a byproduct of it. So the whole idea is if
0: we're avoiding. Sorry, go ahead. No, yeah, Well, no, we will, intent is a really important point to raise because let's say you create automobiles and you're Henry Ford. You could never have predicted that that would increase the temperature of the world 100 years from now. So you have to really be really, well, because we're accelerating these ideas so quickly, we haven't seriously analyzed what the consequences could be of espousing these ideas long term that's the intent process. Well, I didn't intend to make white people feel bad. Well, you never considered that that could have been a consequence. And it's like, it's, there's no shame on you for thinking that because it's very hard to imagine the consequences of doing something long-term, 100 years out. What are the consequences of creating cars? Oh, the temperature of the earth increases by X amount of degrees over like 80 years.
1: Well, I mean, you know, going along with the we and us, um, uh, the binary use of we and us, um, I would also say that most and all, a lot of these statements where people include the words most or all, they can often get themselves in trouble with it because they because even if they're again even if their intent isn't to generalize, that's that's the that's the perception, that's what it sounds like, and that's ultimately the effect. And I mean the the most recent example that are, the most timely example I can think of that sticks out of my mind because it happened a couple months ago was um, Kira Sedgwick was on. I think it was The Talk. I watched both The View and The Talk. Um, I'm masochist, I guess. But uh, <laughs> so she was, uh, and, and I think they were talking about some, I don't know if they were talking about the Me Too and Time's Up movements, or they were talking about something that was a gender-related issue. And she made this statement at one point. She's, she said how, um, in her view, um, men are generally more fragile than women generally speaking she said and she made sure to say generally speaking but the fact that she was so unapologetic about that statement I thought you know that's a lot of gall and I I lost so much respect for
0: Keir Sedgwick
1: in that moment
0: I speak for all men generally what I speak for all men generally oh you're you're you're
1: you're giving an example of what you know he was saying (laughs) yeah yeah so, no, yeah. And I understand what she, again. That's something where I understand what you're, she was. She was probably talking about what or getting at was toxic masculinity yeah, yeah. And, and fall into that trap, and uh, or the the you know the gendered stereotypes or gender roles and the rigidness of those gender roles and how people sacrifice their individuality and their self worth by conforming to those roles. I would venture that that's probably what Kira was getting at there. But in the process, she made a very, in my view, a very appalling statement, um, in the process that really, um, it was, I, I felt it was really, it was very, um, undignified to be saying that about half the human population. Right. Like, people would tell me I'm being too fragile and I'm proving her point by saying this. And that's something I've, that's a really disturbing trend. Again, thanks D'Angelo, but <laughs> what fragile has now become like
0: a cudgel to use against someone like we just can't just handle, hand handle discussions. Yeah. We're yeah. fragile. We can't handle children. Can't handle diversity. Oh Jesus. This rhetoric and is it, driving. And me I'm in. not
1: just, I mean, it's not only used against men or white people. It could be used when talking about any characteristic. Yeah, if You're talking about sexual orientation. If you're talking about age discrimination or uh, generational conflicts that intergenerational conflicts that happen. Um, you could talk about the, the disability community, you know, anyone who, Raises a counterpoint, then gets slammed as fragile, and that's yeah. that's I, you know in one fell swoop that's intended to discredit their entire argument.
0: Can I bring up another point related to children in race consciousness? Yes. Go ahead. Well, what I want to also see is I want to see educators who arm their students with the psychological fortitude to handle any sort of X based adversity that they may face in their life. It's like, okay, here's how people are going to attempt to stop you from achieving your goals. What the hell are you going to do when faced with that situation? Are you going to let that bother you? Or are you going to let that, are you going to say, fuck you? I'm, I'm going to do this anyways. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you think. I am going to make my dreams a reality. Yeah. I mean, I want to see that like, that's the personal empowerment. And Morgan Freeman has this great bit where he was on CNN and he's speaking to I'm forgetting the newscasters name, but essentially this newscaster, the name will come to me after was asking Morgan Freeman. Well, you know, aren't there people who are, who live in poor communities, you know, who, who can't experience like personal empowerment? And Morgan Freeman its a beautiful moment. I'm almost sucking the magic out of the moment by explaining it to you. He pauses (laughs) for four seconds and then he says, bullshit. Like that bus leaves every hour you can just get up and go you know it's that person see i'm very drawn to that that the idea that yes there are ways in which you can be you can be you you can be blocked from achieving whatever the hell it is you want in life sure Mm -hmm. but there is always always a modicum of of chance that you can actually work around that in some way, shape or form. And it's always but the key be- word there is
1: chance that you used. So it's almost like uh, a, a roulette wheel in Vegas, the way it conceptually, I mean, that's, that's how it feels to me when I, what you're saying there, and I'm not, I don't, and I'm not trying to be accusatory toward you. I think that um, a lot of times there's this old school mentality of people who say, well, if people just pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. And then of course the, from the left, the counterpoint to that is well, not everyone has boots. And I think, I think the truth falls somewhere in the middle. I think there's um, validity to both sides of that. But I think that the um, uh, classism is, to, is often very much ignored. And this is what uh, Monica Harris, who's a, a brilliant author on Medium, um, she wrote about this in one of our articles. Um, she said, basically, we should be focusing more on race, or sorry, more on class over race when talking about diversity and achievement and how to help. People, how to help disadvantaged groups. I don't necessarily agree with her that we should focus on class more than race. I think we should focus on class more than we currently do and as much as race, if that makes any sense. So I think um, you know, I understand what the bootstraps folks are trying to say. Again, they're, you know, they, they don't want people to sell themselves short. They don't want people to abandon their ambition because they fall into these this learned helplessness based on what they're uh, their attributes are. But at the same time, um, there, are, there are so many economic barriers that people face, and I faced them so often during my life. Sure. And when coupled with other things like, in my case, disability, sexual orientation, shame and such that i internalized at certain points in my past, I mean, that's how intersectionality works. All these elements build on themselves. So, um, I think in, I forgot which of your previous episodes, but Um, You and one of your guests were talking about the, that, you know, not, not all Black people have the exact same economic experience. Not all of any racial group have the same economic experience. And that's true, but not, you know, not all poor people have the same economic experience. Not all rich people have the same economic experience. So I think what we need to look at is what, you know, what are the, what are the real, again, there's a parallel between this and racial justice. What are the policies that can be put in place that would enhance uh, people to be able to pull themselves out of uh, economic poverty and into better places, or even just in terms of uh, having a successful career, a career that's gonna bring them fulfillment. What are the barriers that are preventing people from that? And what are the solutions? There's, in all of these discussions, there's so little uh, focus on the solutions. There's more focus it seems like on the identity and kind of bathing yourself in your identity, whatever, whatever characteristic it happens to be.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I think I, I agree with people that we should be talking about more about class. I don't think should, we should, we should be, I don't think we should be talking about class at the exclusion of race. I think there's, um, I think there's equal uh, validity to bring both into the conversation when it comes to, you know, building solutions and looking at what those solutions should be. That, and again, that's the whole, interst- my whole interst- yeah. intersectionality is we don't, Um, bring enough characteristics about it we don't talk enough about ageism or ableism or you know fill in the blank you saw all the the isms listed in my the fourth of july article that you were citing but
0: well um, with the point about bootstrapping i've been trying to figure this out so i'm male i'm white i grew up in california i live in san diego i come from a reasonably uh, well-to-do middle-class family. I, okay. I don't believe I've inherited anything else other than the genes that I am able to express um, through creativity and through doing things that you and I are doing. I don't, I'm, I'm really trying to figure out what it is that I've inherited when it comes to privilege. And why I say that is because there was a, there was, there was definitely a time in my life where I was depressed, I was lost. I wasn't doing anything productive with my life whatsoever. I, I was waking up at, Three o'clock in the afternoon, I was a degenerate. I was waking up at three in the afternoon. I was going to bed at 6 a.m. I was masturbating like every day. I was in hell. I was straight up. I've even talked about this on my YouTube channel. I was in straight up hell. And I'm like, I've, and this is an anecdote, right? This is just my lived experience. But I pulled myself out of that and it was hard as hell. And yes, I didn't face any structural, or I wasn't exposed to any Anything that would have that could have been deemed structural slash institutional oppression. Well, you're trying to climb out of a hole. Oh well, here's a policy that's gonna slam you back down into your hell. I I know that I didn't face that, but I'm trying to figure out like what that was when I hear when I hear talks of like white privilege and like it's so great to be white. First of all, I think it sucks being white. You just play golf all day and listen to like boring country music. That's going a
1: stereotype for though. It that's is a stereotype. stereotype, which makes it funny. I've never, I'm white. I've never played golf and I'm not a huge fan of country music. I like things here or there, but so, I mean, yeah, if if you're, if, when we're basing perception on stereotypes, that's, um, that's problematic. <laughs> it becomes more problematic the more we, uh, you know, we use that as a crutch going into
0: yeah. You know- and every great comedian has made problematic discussions the uh, source of their career. It's like Dave Chappelle and a lot of modern modern comedians have done that. And so I don't well, necessarily I mean, believe that's yeah. I like, mean, that, that's that's a whole other discussion. As long as you're discussion. not saying like, as long as you're not getting up on stage and saying I fucking hate XX group, like that's more harmful than like making a comedic caricature of a of a category. In my opinion,
1: yeah. But on the, at the um, by the same token, I think. A lot of comedians they they use that as a crutch. They use their identities as comedians as an excuse. They they want to be held to a lower standard than perhaps non comedians. So I I have a little bit of a problem with that. I think that um, I realize there's it, it's a very uh, delicate tightrope when you're trying to figure out you know. The difference between being funny versus being offensive
0: well what, but, about, the, what about the people who laugh at it like oh ha ha, you know what it's true well,
1: yeah, I, I would but I a lot of times i'd wonder why they're laughing at something is it because they, they know
0: they, it's not true because they know it's not true and that's why they well laugh.
1: is that the case though you don't you don't know it could be the case in, for some of them but not for others they might be it might be a validation of their own their own prejudices or their own bigotry and you just don't know but they're also
0: laughing at themselves like if you got a white guy laughing about what, I've read, what I just said, it's like, oh, ha, ha. well, they're laughing at themselves. Like I made that as a joke is like, right? okay, what do we, we don't have hip hop music. We just have like disco, disco sucks. It's like, or country music.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, I think, it's, I think it's really difficult when people talk about um, white culture. I think it's so difficult to, I think it's so difficult to um I don't know if the bright word would be pigeonhole it, or it's it's so difficult to characterize what is white culture sure. versus other eth- racial groups and ethnicities, you know, that have had those structural disadvantages throughout history because they haven't been able to claim, you know, their own identity, whereas people from of European ethnicities have been able to distinguish, you know, whether you have Italian background or Irish background or German or Norwegian or whatever it is. Um, you know, they've had a lot more, I think, sovereignty over, uh, defining their identity for themselves, so I think there is—I I think that is present in our culture, and I think that needs to be acknowledged. And people need to, you know, be able to, um, you know, show more pride and more celebration in the elements of their uh, identity. If, the, yeah. if it's important to
0: them. well, making fun the same of somebody- time, i don't think
1: people should be obligated to, um, you know, some just because someone's black, they shouldn't yeah. be obligated to celebrate Kwanzaa. It should sure. be does Kwanzaa have meaning to them personally as far as their, um, their upbringing and their, their cultural identity. So, you know, again, I go back to the people who say racism isn't about individuals or race isn't about individuals. Well, in many ways it is because the the breadth of celebration, the breadth of self-identity is very often determinant on how the individual views themselves. So I hmm. think that, that the, oh, racism is only systemic, that, that camp seems to be missing that element, the, the more the more humanized element of mm. how individuals process each of our identities.
0: Well, making fun of somebody for being obese or having leukemia, I think is appalling. And that, oh yeah, no, you know, I agree. I, definitely. Like, but... If it's something that they, if it's something that can like, if it's about a a subject or a, a problem that is, the, the problem itself is more harmful than, the joke, I think. And what I mean by that is like obesity itself is more harmful to people's health than the joke. But but uh-huh. when you say the joke, it's like, well, you, you're not acknowledging how many people die from obesity, like the, the horrible hell that that is to get out of and that it's a serious problem. But so, no, I wouldn't go and say, like, you know, everything's off the table when it comes to to humor. I
1: just yes. don't believe in giving comedians like, a blanket free pass just by virtue of them being comedians.
0: Oh, sure. Absolutely. You, well, it's, it's the same thing, hard like, to take like how... around, like, well, it's very hard to execute a joke like that. And take the case of Dave Chappelle. Jerry Seinfeld says Dave Chappelle dodges bullets every time he gets on stage. He's, like, walking a very fine line. And he, he he it's like he's all he's stepping off the cliff and you think he's gonna fall, and then it's like he lands on a platform and it's like oh maybe cool. you
1: might know the answer to this. I because I, I don't I haven't watched a ton of Dave Chappelle's um material or sets. Sure. So has he had to pu- publicly apologize for anything ever that he's said in his that you know of or
0: people would probably ask him to and then he would go on and describe that he has no reason to whatsoever. I mean he even made a joke about Chris Rock public publicly apologizing for not oh. deciding to host snl okay yeah
1: like, so 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 in, so in other words he he felt that when he's in that instance he thought that chris rock was
0: apologizing for something coming that that pressure he didn't even do that he had no reason to apologize
1: okay all right
0: so and i i've i've listened to a lot of of dave Chappelle and i don't think he's said anything that could have been interpreted as hateful or anti what have you first of all i think it's like Nobody's, no group is exempt from being made fun of in a comedic manner. Everybody mm-hmm. is going to be made fun of, mm-hmm. no matter what. Now, if, if it takes a good comedian to do that, there's right. plenty yes. of terrible. I've seen plenty of terrible comedians get up on stage and try to be the controversial comedian. They make it their whole identity. Oh, I'm gonna say <laughs> something. Yeah. Really, it's like I'm gonna say something conch I'm gonna be the next Dave Chappelle, and then they just bomb, and it's not funny. You have. The, to I, I want
1: to say something about that though. Those <laughs> people, though, I'd say, I'd argue, they're they're less so comedians, and they're more of I'd say they're more accurately described as performance artists <laughs> <laughs> it is to, yeah. to stir shit up and to get controversy j- just for the sake of generating. Provocateurs. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know that their, their intent is necessarily to make people appreciate humor and generate laughter as much as it is to gain more attention for and notoriety for themselves.
0: Yeah. 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 That's it.
1: That's what I would think. And their academic yeah. falls that like Michael, Eric Dyson is the perfect example of that sure he's very he's very intelligent and educated as far as you know book learning but he's a performance artist sure. if you watch his debates or his his um you know the the language that he intentionally invokes in debates it's clear what he's doing and he knows it
0: have you ever but, watched uh old eddie murphy stand-up not a whole lot of it i mean oh I mean, <laughs>
1: eddie murphy yeah. had a lot of
0: uh um, 80s eddie murphy Oh my God! I think it's hilarious. I would love to see what you think about it. He had I mean, a lot
1: of provocative material. There,
0: but oh my God! But he was also just hysterical, <laughs> man. Like the shit he was getting away with, there, he would be, he'd be set on fire in public. <laughs> it was like, doing but, a, that,
1: but in those decades, people could get away with a lot more they would. It was be. also
0: in the, 80, the 80s. the eighties was very politically correct, from what I understand. But Eddie Murphy was just like going at it. Holy. Well, and and that's another thing
1: too. Is what I find really interesting is everyone seems to have their own definition of what political correctness is. Sure. So what it is, what you define as political correctness might be totally different from what I define as it. So, you know, for me, I view, so a lot of people, they say that people who are putting too much emphasis on um, multiculturalism or just trying to explore diversity are being politically correct. I don't view it that way. I don't think political, to me, political correctness is not, appreciating multiculturalism and diversity to me that's just part of the human experience but what I view as political correctness is that when people uh, employ uh, double standards hypocritical double standards and they apply it in most cases to um, you know you can't you can't say or do this about the minority group whatever yeah. the attribute is but you can do it about the majority group in my view that's political correctness because you're not having there's a lack of symmetry there there's a lack of uh really equality at its core so but other people would say oh you know like when they're when if schools are talking about you know different um different holidays or different uh different customs that they'd find in uh, other countries in the world that perhaps reflect the heritage of the student body people would say oh that's political correctness sure i don't i don't agree with that viewpoint but i think it's i think that's just you know a beautiful celebration of the human experience. But when you're holding people to different standards because you've decided someone is suddenly the oppressor class or they fall into the oppressor class, right. it's where I think political correctness really rears its ugly head. That's how I view it. But again, everyone has a different definition for it. So I don't think it's almost like the definition of political correctness has become meaningless because people wield it however they, however they view it.
0: Well, one could also make the argument that the right has a politically correct status quo and that would be America uh, ultra nationalistic ultra patriotic view of America without any nuance and like that's the, the American exceptionalism the American exceptionalism too. Yeah. Speaking about American exceptionalism, there's this great quote by a a podcast host uh, who I really enjoy, Anna Kachian. She hosts the Red Scare podcast, which is incredibly politically incorrect, which is why I love it. She has a quote that goes, "American exceptionalism has gone so far that America wants to be seen as its most racist country in the world."
1: Yeah, I'd say there's truth to that. Definitely, (laughs) it's like who's who's the who's the podcaster that? uh, There's
0: two podcast hosts. It's um, Dasha, I'm forgetting your last name. They're both from Russia, and Anna Kachian. They both, I think one of them's from Belarus and then the other one's from okay. Russia, Belarus. Yeah, Red Scare. So are they, would they be,
1: where, where would they fall on the political spectrum if they were hard pressed to identify, self-identify, do you think?
0: Or, sometimes I, I can't tell, I, sometimes I can't tell. They uh, They pick apart a lot of ideas, um, both on the right and on the left, but they're like you in the way that they, they see underneath uh, the flaws of the woke ideology. And these mm-hmm. public cancellations of of like Mumford and Sons band members and what have you, <laughs> yeah. They also talk a lot about fashion. It's, it's a it's oh a very okay. Well, I'm podcast. I'm totally
1: illiterate when it comes to <laughs> fashion knowledge or yeah, fashion sense.
0: So <laughs> they have a very di- they have a well. Speaking of diversity, they got a very diverse uh, audience. They you know mm-hmm. got, they got they'll have like love line episodes on Valentine's Day and like trans folks will call in and like ask about oh. sex. It's very cool, and they'll talk about like just all sorts of stuff eric weinstein's a big fan of them funnily enough it's just a very refreshing cultural commentary podcast there's there's like i mean everybody has a bias right they -hmm. have their biases i have mine you have yours but it's like when we when we appreciate and let everybody's um, biases flourish in a society in which free speech is allowed then i think we're we're on the right track I mean, you can have, like, an awfully painful, an awfully harmful, you can have, like, an extremism bias and those certainly exist. Um, it's like, I don't know if uh, <laughs> you want, like, a, a Proud Boys podcast <laughs> to be distributed or something. but like.
1: Well, I think one of the healthiest things that people can do is, um, you know, embrace um, those instances where their biases are proven to be wrong. At least that's how I view it. Yeah. yeah. If, I, if I have misconceptions about someone um, if it's, if I, if I gain a more po- positive or favorable, favorable view of them, I, you know, I like being proven wrong in that manner. And by the same token where, like I mentioned with Kira Sedgwick, when someone says something that I find, um, inane or repelling and they've disappointed me, that's, that's the other end of the rainbow there. Yeah. But,
0: um, well, that you can be disappointed by an actor is a good sign that you're actually paying attention because what we see <sighs> with this, like cultish, uh, personification of folks like Robin DiAngelo is that her ardent you followers know. are trained not to see any flaws in her worldview. That's and called a cult. It's called a cult and this is this also going <laughs> to be extreme but that's also like well that's what Stalin and Kim Jong-il want you to believe is that they're completely flawless people and that but, they... Can-
1: let me ask you something though don't and I don't know if this is one of the things you wanted to talk about but don't um don't you find that it to be a little cognit- cognitively dissonant for people to say so on the one hand you have people saying, you know, toxic masculinity is bad. It's um, preventing men and boys from self-actualizing ourselves. And I would agree with that position, but then a lot of these same people say, whenever male persons do express emotion, hurt feelings, pain, whatever you want to call it, then we're told we're too fragile. So, you know, by some of the same people. So it's like, you can't have it both ways. Are you, are you- What, what, What
0: was the question exactly?
1: Well, I'm saying you can't in one breath accuse someone of succumbing to toxic masculinity or perpetuating toxic masculinity, and then on the other hand say, "Oh, but they're being too fragile when they when they do truly speak their mind." That I don't know if that's that makes any sense. That
0: I mean, it wouldn't make sense to me to say, "Well, this person's finally speaking their mind, therefore they're being fragile," uh, all in the same breath as as accusing somebody of of being of exhibiting the traits which we are positing towards toxic masculinity i just call douchebaggery (laughs) and it's not everyone who does it you know not everyone holds those
1: cognitively dissonant views sure different hands but some people do and that's where it's confused so that's why when you hear about men and boys being confused about what maleness or masculinity means yeah those mixed messages they muddy the waters too much. I, that-
0: my, my view on masculinity has always been inspired by fictional male characters who, like Uncle Iroh, for example. Have you seen Avatar The Last Airbender? No, I don't watch most movies. I haven't seen most mainstream movies. Okay, well, you had no childhood. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> Uncle Iroh from Avatar The Last Airbender or Kakashi from Naruto, Shippuden, uh, Rock Lee, Bruce Lee, who Rock Lee was based off of. I really appreciate male characters who, well, do admittedly have the bootstrapping um, worldview. And like, I grew up mm-hmm. on anime and I grew up on, on okay. stories of like being told through anime characters like Naruto and Cowboy Bebop. And so I kind of grew up around that. And Toonami had these awesome commercials, these promotions for their shows that were two minutes long, but they were also stories about personal empowerment, about following your dreams, and that every boy should have a dream. And that like, you know, she'd be able to dream big and like go out into space. And I thought that was so inspiring. And I still watch those today. And so my view of masculinity is like somebody who is um, not not just purely bootstrapping, ignoring all of your emotions, but very self-aware of themselves, very, very Mm -hmm. aware of what they're feeling. And they take they take time to understand themselves and they appreciate their friends and they appreciate Mm -hmm. themselves and they treat themselves right. They 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 treat their bodies and their minds and souls with the respect that they deserve instead of like merely pumping iron at the gym and being too focused right. on um, appearances. Appearances, I do think appearances are important and that um, the, more, the more you work on yourself, the more confident you become. I don't think you start off with cockiness and confidence and perhaps that's what people talk about when they talk about toxic masculinity. You've got these dude right. dudes who are confident without having done any hard work in their life. And they think that they can just mm-hmm. slap women on the ass whenever they want. And they're just fucking douchebags. The entitlement. Entitlement. Yeah. Yeah. You, I, I think yeah. if you're entitled to anything, it's something that you have to earn with blood, sweat, tears and sacrifice. So mm-hmm. sort of back to the privilege thing. My, I, my yes. view on privilege is like you earn, perhaps there is a degree to which you have privileges that are unearned in that, Recognizing them is useful because then you ask yourself, well, how can I use my access to a roof over my head and Wi-Fi as a force for good? Okay, Mm -hmm. then how can I use the privileges that I've earned by practicing something for, for many, many hours a day over a year? I earn a privilege by being competent at a skill or a set of skills. It's both something earned and then there's a little bit of unearned stuff or a lot. I don't know the exact ratio, but I see it as a mixture of things.
1: Yeah, no, I think, I think, and I think that's a fair statement too. Um, you know, I, uh, I think that, um, one problem that tends to happen is, uh, and I can't remember the name of the author. It's on the tip of my tongue, but there was a medium author who talked about how the word toxic does get overused. And I would agree with what she said to a certain extent. I think that her point was that toxic is supposed to be referring to, uh, adverse patterns of behavior. So the key word being pattern. So, you know, I probably couldn't say, oh, Kira Sedgwick is a toxic person just because she made that one statement. I think, you know, it was, it, it was a very, it felt toxic to be essentially on the receiving end of it, but that doesn't, need, I, you know, you have to give the benefit of the doubt and say, is that really who she is as a person just for making that one statement? So toxic is usually referring to someone who has this pattern of, offensive behavior and it happens over and over again right and entitlement mixed in and they they live it and breathe it so that's i think and i think and again i i oh that was uh i think it was Kasira copes i think i might be butchering her last name Kasira copes i is is the author i might be thinking of there but um so i I, you know, I think there's there's some truth to that as well it's like how do you how does one define toxicity um right you know, that's something we have to look at just when, you know, gauging human interaction is someone having a moment where they, they say, they say or do something ridiculous, and it's not representative of who they are, or is that indeed emblematic of, of who they are, and how they conduct themselves generally and it's hard to it's hard to know that when you're, if you're only receiving a little snippet of someone's personality, right, you don't have, you know, the prolonged interaction with someone, you right. kind of have to Figure out how to reconcile, you know, your emotional reaction versus um, objectivity of knowledge as to the person's track record, and you can't always know that in such a small period of time. So, right. it's quite right. so hard for uh, for people to um, to navigate each other's uh, conflicting perspectives.
0: Well, time is an interesting factor to consider when it comes to engaging with people. You need. When when you're just meeting, encountering somebody on the street, you have no clue whether or not you should trust them. Right. You've never met them. Now, look, you should, you should, you should assume that this person deserves respect. You treat them right. respectfully until they pull a knife out on you,
1: right? <laughs> treat them with respect. Or the metaphorical um, equivalent of that.
0: The metaphorical equivalent of a knife. Yes. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah that's the thing. And then, yeah. Do you want to discuss briefly your thoughts on the evolution of Pride Month?
1: Oh, sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, um, I remember growing up in the, uh, 1990s and particularly the late nineties when I was a teenager. Um, one of the big problems that I had was, um, we just didn't see any meaningful, many meaningful depictions of LGBT characters in pop culture, probably neither in film, but I was more into TV. So definitely in television, especially on primetime television. And I think that's kind of, that's very slowly changed and it's, it's gotten a lot better than it was. And it especially changed, I think, in the late aughts, uh, almost around the same time um, of the great recession. And uh, when the Obama administration began, and I'm not saying one is connected to the other, that's just around the time, I think, where we saw a noticeable rise. Yeah. In, uh, LGBT depictions. So I think corporate America and I think um, products and you know, marketers over those products have have followed that evolution. They've uh, they now are, are trying to appeal to uh, LGBT audiences. And in some case, and it's good that they're trying, um, but is the execution always the best? That's the. That's the I don't issue. think it is. I remember that. I maybe miss. I might be misremembering mis- this, but. It was several years back. They had like the, it was, I believe it was Skittles. They had, they celebrated Pride Month. Uh, black and white, the gray Skittles, they still have? Yeah, the- like like taking out all the colors and saying colors are for, and I thought the whole thing was ridiculous. I'm like, <laughs> then, they, then they got accused of being racist. They said, oh, these are racist Skittles <laughs> because they're black and white, which I do. thought was equally ridiculous. So, I mean, I understand, again, the good intention that the company had, but to me, it just didn't, for me, as a gay person, it wasn't very meaningful. It's like, you know, saying we're gonna omit colors of the rainbow so that myself and my kin can suddenly, you know, have ownership of that rainbow. It's kind of, it's just like really silly.
0: (laughs) I get this strange, perverse, like BDSM-esque pleasure whenever i see companies with good intentions try to execute something wholesome and then it blows up in their face i love seeing that i love seeing skittles try to be like for the community and then everybody there's like a huge backlash like what the fuck are you doing i mean i wasn't
1: offended by it i just i just thought it was it was weird
0: yeah i, but it was I, like, weird I think it's hilarious when show we, support like i love hearing this this backlash from the communities that the companies are they think they're representing and they're like dude you got the whole thing wrong like part of my problem with these companies trying to pander to LGBTQ is that it's just all rainbows and smiles and daisies without addressing the real nuances of, of that.
1: Well, you have to, part of that is, and this goes back to, you know, when we talk about structural inequities is how many LGBT people are in the leadership, the company's leadership. Right. Answer is different depending on the company, but I, I would imagine in many of those cases it is mainly either Openly heterosexual or um, de facto heterosexual people in those roles, and and I'm not saying you know I'm not someone who there's there's this misconception out there I think amongst some on the right wing that that LGBT people want to destroy heteronormativity, and that's not that's not entirely accurate. I think the problem with heteronormativity is saying that when people say that. Uh, opposite sex nuclear families, traditional families are the ideal. That's where I think it's very problematic because then then they're marginalizing everyone who doesn't fall into that neat little box. But I don't think anyone, at least I haven't heard anyone say, anyone within the LGBT community say, oh, we're out to destroy heterosexuality. We're trying to stop procreation or we're trying to um, make straight people feel bad about their identities i don't feel that way at least and if any of the folks in my community express that i would openly disagree with them if they tried to
0: virtue- did, there's there's uh did you see that um graphic that came out of some chicago-based pride movement where it was this woman twerking on a cop car holding a burning american flag and i only raise this point because it's like there are some times where like well this is a discussion on corruption we've we've i think we've really been having a discussion on corruption itself like the corruption of technology the corruption of 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 movements of movements yes and so <laughs> when we see graphics of people twerking on cop cars holding a burning american flag that is i think an example of corruption itself manifesting its ugly little head in a movement that is well that one would think is pretty benevolent and, and innocuous and deserves of it's attention but then we're seeing like a peer like the snake of corruption is is peering its head and it's like oh pride is now being associated with the burning of the american like whoa like i right. i i cannot help but feel bad for 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 this this these groups of people who yeah. are now being represented by corrupt representations of their movement which is what i see and then the people on the right are like oh well they want to burn the american flag because look what i saw on on the epoch times
1: i mean yeah i, I remember um when i when i transferred to school and i was attending film school in la and we had a uh, um one of our um our uh residence hall directors um we you know we were i forgot what we were talking about we were doing some um group activity or we were, we were planning some group event and somehow. The topic just got on pop culture, and people were talking about uh, Flava Flav and they were talking about his, you know, his antics or bad behavior. I don't know a whole lot about him as an artist, but, and um, so what the residence hall director, um, uh, you know, who she was a she was a very she was a really phenomenal person. She said, uh, you know, she was very a very compassionate person, and she happened to be a black woman. And she said, she's like, uh she's like, he makes all of us black people look bad. And, I mean, she was part of the group there that yeah. attached stigma in that case based right. on the antics of Flava Flav, whatever he was doing that people found to be offensive. But that same person once, she said, to, uh, I remember, um, and I forgot what the issue was, but we were, t- it was something that I was worrying about. And she said to me, she's like, she looked at me once and she said, she's like, you are a worry wart. And I realized she wasn't trying to be offensive, but at the same time, my disability is largely based on High anxiety. She didn't necessarily know about that about me. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you know that reaction from me, someone is telling me I'm overreacting because it's viewed as normal not to worry too much. I mean, there is some inherent ableism there, even if it isn't intentional on the part. Does that? I mean, does that make sense? That it does make sense. Yes. That's it. and again, so again, I don't, I don't think it was coming from a malicious place, but that's an example of how isms can kind of seat their way in either subconsciously or unintentionally too. And I didn't call her out or anything when, when she said that. I just kind of like, you know, let it slide off my back. But that's, you know, that's an example. When people talk about microaggressions, that's, I think, one, one example that I can recall having experienced. I'm sure if you gave me six hours, I could think of a whole list of others, but that's just one, one example, you know. So I think there is there is legitimate, you um, criticism of people who practice microaggressions, but I think we also have to, um, those of us who come from whatever marginalized group we belong to, we have to also keep in mind that um, when it's unintentional on the part of the person committing the microaggression, we should also have uh, a certain level, a certain element of forgiveness, or at least willingness to try to educate if they're being, um, if they're open to it. And I, as, as you remember from the, again, the article that you cited, the 4th of July piece that I wrote, I said in the article, um, when I, that wasn't the article, it was the article about the elevator. You read that one too. You did. The straight couple who I encountered in the elevator. Yep. They, they thought I was weird because I, I was a gay virgin at the time. <laughs> and, and it's called, um, the piece that I wrote and I go ahead and Google it any of your listeners if you're interested in reading it, but it was called that time I met homophobia in an elevator and I talked about this this gay couple that just randomly asked me if I was or this straight couple they randomly asked me if I was gay in an elevator at the academic building of the college I used to attend and I'm like yeah and they're like the the woman I assume they were a married couple the woman's like aren't you afraid of getting sick basically told her I'm a virgin you know because at that point in my life and then she's and she's like oh, a gay virgin. And she kind of looks at her husband. I'm assuming it was her husband. She looks at him kind of salaciously. And I, I mean, I, I felt I did feel objectified in that instance. And that, that, I think that was a microaggression, even though I don't think that couple was necessarily intending to be malicious toward me. It was just something they didn't understand. And I said in the article, when I recounted that experience, I said how Yes, I realize it's not my job to educate them, but I would have loved the opportunity if we'd had more time to sit down and talk with them and be someone to educate them. Because, you know, the way I look at it is, if 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 I can educate something someone on a lived experience that I've had, I'd rather they hear about it from me rather than from Robin D'Angelo, You know, <laughs> so so I mean, that's that's kind of how I look at um, the whole issue of microaggressions and intergroup education, so to speak. I don't, I'm not saying it's ever anyone has a duty to educate anyone else. Uh, you know, but I think if there are those opportunities that can be where it can be valuable, it can lead to valuable experiences when the, when we can utilize those opportunities, if they, you know, if our relationship with the person lends itself to that, I think there is value in that.
0: My problem with microaggressions is that maybe this is um, another case of just going overboard and attempting to train people to only see times where people don't hold the door open for you being attributed right. to uh, prejudice they have against you instead of anything other than just right. not realizing that they were behind Are they having a bad day
1: yeah, or, right you know, whatever
0: attribute, don't attribute to malice what can be attributed to ignorance something like that and that it um it just makes i think too much of a focus on it and look i'm i i do not mean this to downplay what happened to you in the elevator That right, is a right example of of ignorance and just very strange comments being told to you in an elevator from a complete stranger. But I think, and this is my biased take on things is that if it's a microaggression, what does it lead to other than micro harm?
1: Well, in that case, what I, the assumption that I'm making is in all likelihood that couple, they didn't have LGBT people, LGBT people in their daily lives or openly in their family. That's an assumption I'm making. And that's kind of where I approached it from. So I, again, that's why I say, I don't think they came from it. They came at it from a malicious place. Um, but it still makes me think, well, you know, the fact that they, they, they assumed that I was at high risk to get AIDS or HIV, they were making assumptions about my sexual life based on the fact that I am a gay male person. So that, you know, that is, the very definition of a microaggression when you make assumptions about people and then you go ahead and um, and you you know you confront the person in some way even if it seems like a harmless or innocuous way um, it's it's a lack of understanding and they clearly had a lack of understanding from their part about what my experience was um, as a gay male person at that point in my life because I was in my early 20s at that point but my experience is different from many many other people Within the LGBT community itself, so I think there were preconceived notions. And again, I'm not saying it's the worst thing that's ever happened to me. No, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm so, I, I'm not saying, so, but I, it's to me, it's a little insulting for someone to say to me, "Well, what you went through was just mildly annoying." Well, no, yeah. it's more than mildly annoying because I've thought about it so often in the 15 years or so since it happened to me. So, and I, those types of thoughts, you know, do I have to censor myself around this person or? Do I, can I be authentically myself around this person because they might at, react badly? Those are things, you know, you internalize those thoughts and you sometimes, for me, it's linked to my disability because I have obsessive tendencies with my disability. So then I'll start obsessing over it internally. And that's again, where intersectionality comes into play. That's where my sexual orientation and my disability status intersect.
0: Did, and, did the person who call you a worrywart know that you're high in trait anxiety? I don't, no, I don't believe she, she didn't? did. Okay.
1: I Yeah, I know the, the hall director. No, okay. she did. So again, it was- The reason was...
0: I ask, well, the reason why yeah. I ask is because like that that could be an example of, of just pure rudeness. And then it would also be an example, if that happened 14 times in a row, then this is just a toxic person and they're just an asshole.
1: Well, I think, no, I don't think, and I don't even think she was a toxic person. Actually, I know well, she- No,
0: no, sure. But like, like just like- But what I'm well, if this here's where I think was she was coming
1: saying, from. Oh, go ahead. I think she was saying that- In her view, I think she felt that I was worrying too much about something that most normal people wouldn't worry too much about. So she she was coming at it from a place of love almost. She didn't want to see me put myself through that, but she didn't know that I had this specific disability. So that lack of knowledge, there was ableism underlying that because what's the default there? The default is this is how a normal person reacts to it when they don't have this high anxiety. I, I don't know if that makes any sense what I'm saying.
0: No, you're making sense.
1: Yeah, it's it's like, you know, if you if you interact with people, and someone is exhibiting, you know, whatever level of high anxiety, and you say, oh, well, they're just, they're bringing it on themselves, they're just worrying too much, then you're closing yourself off to the possibility that they have a legitimate, you know, disabled status, which I did in that case, so I mean, again, it's 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 unconscious. It's not something that's coming from a place of malice, but it's still a microaggression in that case. And so, when people talk about racial microaggressions, gender-based microaggressions, you know, a lot of times they encounter those dynamics. So, it, it, it's 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 not an easy thing to do to figure out. You know, you want to give someone else the benefit of the doubt, but if it's someone who you don't know very well, like as we talked about, you don't know what their history is. You don't know what their pattern of behavior is. And you can't really know whether they're a toxic person or not. So it's, you know.
0: Well, no, you you can't. And everybody you pass on this everybody you pass in life, you don't know their histories. You you have right. absolutely no no matter how good people seem to have it you have absolutely you cannot assume that it's been easy for anybody because if you do assume it's easy for anybody well then you're making a huge mistake and like Mm -hmm. the example that i gave earlier of, of my life five years ago when i was just in a completely horrible rut waking up at 2 p.m in the afternoon every day you know nobody would assume that that was going on but it was but you just can't assume anything about what's going on in, in the background of people's lives They could be dealing with a f- the death of a family member they could be dealing with a lot of shit.
1: but how many people do how many times do we hear people saying making those value judgments without even knowing someone? you know you, how often do we hear people who, who say you know men well, have, sure it could men also, well, white have. people have it easier than black people. Well yeah, there are elements, particularly systemic elements of life where this group might have it easier than this group. Based on the circumstances, but at the same time, you can't view one's entire life on that scope. That doesn't mean their life in general is easier. It's you're looking at one very, very narrow part of their life, and people are making are extrapolating from that and making value judgments of, oh, because you know these privileges or these uh, these uh, disparities or these uh, this adversity applies to this person because of this one characteristic. I'm gonna make this this broad extrapolation about their entire life. And that's, I think, what's dangerous. And that's the trap we, we all, I don't want to say we all, but so many of us fall into regardless of where we fall on the ideological spectrum.
0: I don't want to justify any ill intent of, on, on, the, on the motivation of people who say rude comments to other people. But I do believe that like, the more we face adverse situations and again this is no justification of of suffering And it well right right just, i do think deciding to well to, to sacrifice your time which is which can be seen as a form of suffering because you're not doing something that's comfortable right now and in, in the present for the benefit of a better future you could have somebody who's acting rude to you but then not attribute that it doesn't always have to be attributed. i know you're not saying this but just for the yeah. point of what we're talking about Sometimes they could just be tired, or they're just having a shitty day, or their kids are that's driving true. them crazy. It's like, how often is it due to homophobia? How often is it due to unconscious biased racism? I don't know. Well, you can't really know
1: until you have a uh, well, a, yeah, a discussion with that person. So right. that's the that's the limitation that we have. So that's so obviously we should utilize those opportunities if we have them. But if we don't, if it's a very finite period of time when we're interacting with someone. It's like, you have to make that split second decision. Are you going to call them out? How do you call them out? You know, what's, what's the most constructive way to handle the situation? Because if you say nothing, then if there is a problem, if there is a microaggression that's coming from place of, um, of bigotry or what have you, then by saying nothing, you know, you're, almost you're letting that behavior potentially perpetuate when they encounter other people later in life. So it's a very, very, um. Uh, It's a difficult thing to gauge of, you know, when when to challenge someone, even if you do it in a nice way or in a a diplomatic way, when to challenge someone, how to challenge it. So you're not necessarily sounding accusatory, but at the same time, you're letting someone know what the impact of their words were on you or what their actions were on you. And what they might be on other people if they repeat that behavior toward other people. So it's really, it's not. A, there's no scientific formula for it. It's not an easy thing.
0: I'm trying to figure out the degree to which one could embrace certain aspects of their identity without uh-huh. making those aspects of their identity all they are. I.e., oh, I, am only gay. I'm just going to be the the gay guy. Like my buddy <laughs> Christian Watson when he started his yeah. um, YouTube show. He was marketing himself as like the gay black conservative until he realized that that's wait I don't want people to merely remember me by my by these identities, political, well, sexual, and then racial.
1: Well, on my for example, on my Medium profile where you can do like just like I think my I believe my Medium and Twitter profiles are the same where I I list some of the inter- intersectional um, identities that I have, particularly those that are from you know marginalized groups, and people might ask me, well, why do you do that? And the answer is because, you know, I want to bring, I want to bring my perspective to the table.
0: Sure. My perspective
1: is different from other people who happen to belong to the same group as me. I want to exhibit how the group itself is diverse because I think this, you know, among, you know, there's a, there's a, I won't say his name, but there's a gentleman on on medium. He's um, a little older than me. He's a gay activist. He runs a publication and you know, he and I have a lot of the same ideas on equality issues, but we also have some different ideas. I feel, you know, there should be, um, you know, religious liberty in the private spheres, whether it's when it comes to private business ownership or, you know, outside of the the public or systemic spheres, um, certainly within houses of worship. Um, But he's someone who takes the broad perspective of, well, no, we need to start legislating this when it comes to what churches say and do you know what private business owners say and do we need to we need to crack down on them to make sure they're not discriminating against you know gay lesbian bisexual transgender people and he and i happen to disagree on that even though we're from the the same you know intersectional groups that people consider to be an oppressed group so that's that's one example but there could be umpteen different examples if you you know compare yourself to a variety of other people who you share attributes with. That doesn't mean you're going to have the same position as them and everything. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I think showing more of those differences. So, you know, certainly I haven't watched, tuned into Christian's show, but I'm sure he's had guests who um, he disagrees with about various things and they might be, you know, from whatever group that he shares those attributes with, but, what they're doing is they're ha- in that case they'd be having a dialogue to show that no, no group is a monolith, and you know no group is homogenous in terms of, you know, not just the behavior of members of the group but the philosophies that are embodied by members of the same group. So, and I think that's 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 sort of the basics of what the, you know what they call heterodoxy, which I just began reading more about. Um, in a limited amount of time I've been on Medium. Um, and, you know, I think it's I think it's a very interesting concept. Um, I believe it's Coleman Hughes who's kind of delved into that uh, a little bit on on his show, and that's something I want to um, learn more of the nuances about because I think I think heterodoxy could be, um, you know, a, a very healthy balance, something to balance the extremes that can be found in things like critical race theory or anti racism. Um, you know. I think the whole the problem with the whole term anti-racism is it's it's almost like a Kafka trap. Hmm. It's It's like it's like you're 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 setting people up for they have to automatically agree with the wording from on the on. Right. If
0: it's if it's not already anti-racist, therefore it is racist. If it's not called anti racist if it's if you're teaching right. math in a non-anti-racist manner, therefore you are teaching it racistly, which was the point I was attempting to make, which I think is wrong, which I think that's dead wrong. Just because, well, first of all, anti-racism—how new is that? It's like you come up with—it's like not being racist, like that's been around forever. But this—it's kind of right. like a new term, anti-racism. I don't know how long it's been around, but these days it's like it's kind of a new thing, and I don't but mean not be being the, racist.
1: And this might tie into what you're saying. Who gets to be the arbiter of what constitutes anti-racism?
0: Which we should always be asking ourselves about any idea whatsoever. The the in, the intent and the motivation is is very very important. And I've and for some reason the the far leftists don't think that that's even necessary to consider, like intent and motivation, just because you. Well, have they're to trying to it.
1: indoctrinate people with a very narrow worldview. That's why, and they're using some some of them are using. The term anti-racism or CRT or whatever as a vehicle to try to accomplish that. So there, it's you know thought. We hear so much about you know when you disagree with someone, they'll accuse you. Oh, stop tone policing me. And I found that usually the people who complain about tone policing tone policing what's that? People who are thought policing.
0: Wait, 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 what's what's tone policing? Tone
1: policing is they do, when you get accused of if you don't like the way someone said something, okay, the way they're articulating their point of view, and you say you know you challenge the way they're articulating their point of view they'll say well you're tone policing me you well
0: isn't that what, what, i don't like your attitude like what yeah am, exactly exactly oh my, what, that's that, like, i've said that to people
1: <laughs> that's that well but that that's it's an extrapolation i think
0: to a certain degree that is that is justified like if somebody's just got a snotty ass tone with you and you got a shitty boss and they're just yeah but, but it's not always
1: like they're not always snide in terms of their their literal tone it could be just the challenging of the language that someone employed sure. gotcha. without, the, without necessarily the adversarial tone. Gotcha. To it. And so it, it goes back to all, you know, all those, I, I jotted this down because I was watching the, um, the interview you did with Aaron, where um, he was talking about how when Martin Luther King said, you know, we must create conflict so that um, these repressed truths will be addressed. And I think you two were going back and forth about that because I think the point you brought up was something along the lines of, well, yeah, we can create conflict, but to what end? What right. will be the result of the type of conflict? So if you if you if you say to someone, well, I don't think making that accusation is appropriate, or I don't think it's really getting to the heart of what the problem we're trying to solve, then a common fallback uh, answer or response will be, Oh, well, you're tone policing me. I've lost friends over this who've who've, who've, who've told me, Oh, you're tone policing me. And you know, it was clear that they were trying to thought police me, so I, you know, there are certain people who, when a conversation reaches a certain point with them, it's like, you know, nothing you say is going to ever get through to them. They're never going to be willing to, you know, explore different angles of an issue, so in cases you, it's what psychologists would call unplugging. You just unplug the relationship, Um, you know, and it wasn't anyone super close that it's happened to me with, but it's, you know, it's it's a real shame that it's happening in this climate that we're in right now. Um, you know, more friendships, more uh, relatives are becoming estranged, and I don't know if you know, I don't know where that's going to lead to. But it's a yeah. Bit-
0: I know somebody um, within my family who was has been sucked into far left extremism, and yes, that is a real thing, despite what you hear mm-hmm. on CNN. There is a such thing yep. as far left extremism. Yep yeah she uh, has been very closely aligned with um antifa and so she's also said some very um strange remarks about other members of the family who Hmm. has who have attempted to explain to her why what she is doing is a mistake and well it's it's again this is is the stolen Facebook trying to get so off. She of probably told Facebook. them they were
1: tone policing her.
0: I don't know what she was saying. <laughs> I, I kind of hear it through the grapevine, but the, what the, that is what's happening. It's like, you've got, I don't understand why we can't coexist with deferring political views. I think disagreements strengthen friendships and relationships rather than mm-hmm. yeah. dilute them. And I think if, if somebody says, well, I lost a friend because I came out with these views, that person was never, you might, you might've thought that that person was your friend, but, but the whole time they were thinking, well, if this person says something about Trump or says something about Biden, boom, that's it. Friendship over. Audio, right. motherfucker. It's like yeah, oh. I don't jump
1: to that conclusion. This was this was oh a, no, yeah. Example I'm giving was a prolonged discussion. Okay. That person and she wasn't a very close friend, but it was sure. still disappointing that I, you know, that I ultimately felt I had to end the friendship because of where it was the trajectory that it was headed on. I
0: just think it's so f- like I just get a kick out of hearing. People say things that even I just completely disagree with, and they're good friends of mine. It's like, oh, wait, wait, we're still friends despite yeah. our disagreements. It's the anti fragility thing that talking about fragility, Nassim Nicholas Taleb talks about, which is to be anti fragile to let adverse situations strengthen the stimulus, like to strengthen the product. You expose a product to the market, the market decides they don't want it, you improve the product, you expose your ideas to right. a discussion on a podcast, you find out what people like to hear and don't like, and you adjust accordingly.
1: Well, it's, yeah, it, it, like I was saying earlier with the, the word fragile has become a cudgel, basically. Yeah. If, you know, they'll substitute it. So that's, it's an accusation where if you, some people are taking the position of, if you disagree with me, you know, if you are not willing to admit that I'm right, then that means you're fragile. That's, that's, they've repurposed it for that, that, um, that very nefarious end.
0: And you're not fragile at all. We've had a lot of interesting back and forths with our, with our points here. I don't get the same uh, yeah I'm saying what they're done. what they're
1: saying because they want to ram their perspective through everyone's head and that's why we can't coexist is because of those individuals who yeah. approach
0: life in that way you need your own <laughs> podcast I'm dead serious you should start a YouTube channel just start talking. I don't it doesn't matter if you don't have a nice camera <laughs> I'm serious just start talking you would be surprised at how many people just benefit like benefit from hearing just people talk unedited unscripted mm-hmm. hey here you know I just want to talk about this thing like hopefully my friend and I will get that up and running good. And- because you you will surprise people i think people you surprised you surprised me like i'm trying to categorize you and i hate that i cannot do it
1: (laughs) i'm a nasty gentleman (laughs) that's how i describe myself
0: where would you displace yourself on the political spectrum i'm a centrist okay
1: once i'm a centrist i mean i there might be some issues where i have i'm i'm more liberal or I'm more conservative on the specific topic but overall you know, I try, to, I try to look at problem solving with, from multiple angles and to accommodate as many people as possible and to balance, you know, the conflicting sides. So that's, you know, ideologic, ideologically and philosophically, I'd say I'm, a, a, and I, I mean, apparently some people have different distinctions between what's, what's centrist and what's moderate. Um, to me, they're kind of analogous to each other. But that's, you know, that's how I define and, and people, you know, centrist, centrism has become a dirty word these days. Apparently, if you're if you identify as a political independent or a centrist, you know you apparently don't stand for anything. Right. In the middle of the road, and you're going to get run over by both sides. That's the cliche. Um, you're you know you you don't have convictions. Um, you don't know where you stand on issues. You know those are all red herrings. Um, I don't you know I I I feel I'm the antithesis of those types of allegations. But I still identify as a centrist because that's just how I approach. Um, you know, issue by issue, how I uh, how I approach uh, looking at solutions and other people. You know, are, uh, how do you define yourself as far as like where would you say you are ideologically?
0: Probably center right. Okay, all right. Probably center right. Um, even with some of my conservative um, compatriots, we have our disagreements. I don't think yeah. I'm the most conservative people, uh, conservative person I know. I didn't vote for Trump or Biden. Uh-huh. <laughs> I didn't vote for anybody. I Feel like my vote. Voting was a weird thing for me because I was like, I don't like either candidate here. Well, we could do a whole show about electoral reform. That's 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 a, that's a
1: plethora of yeah. solutions in and of itself. So. Yeah,
0: I mean, um, I love, look, I'll say it. I, I don't know why this is like uncool to say these days. I love America. I love living here. I consider myself reasonably patriotic, but not like a guy with a Toyota truck with American flags coming out of the back of his truck. <laughs> which I see all the time here in San Diego. You know, I'm a big fan of... Uh, I'm just a big fan of what we have here. And I, I do, I love, it's weird to say I love this, but I love reading about history. Um, I'm reading the Gulag Archipelago right now. And I love reading stories about North Korea and the atrocities in North Korea and the atrocities of Stalin's Russia and the Communist Party in China. And Because I do that because it gives me an appreciation of what I have here in America. Like it doesn't make me like wanna go and vote for Trump. It just makes me right. appreciate the values we have here in America. The, the fundamental ve- which we have had to fight for and it's like look mm-hmm. the thing with the burning uh, look when when people say like you know fuck america for for making it right. so hard for trans or gay people to to fight their fight i would say well at least they're able to fight the fight you cannot have that fight in many countries around the yeah. world you would get shot or pushed mm-hmm. off of the roof of a building Like, I I understand that it's a very difficult fight and like, it's still going on today. Like prop eight took forever to pass, you know? Yeah. Like I understand that. And that's worth discussing, but it's like, at least you can raise your fists and go and raise your fists and fight that fight. But just be thankful that you are allowed, you are able to fight and that it's going to be a fight, but at least you can have it. And that's what we have here in America. And I'm very, and God bless that in my opinion.
1: I mean, I think, and one of the problems that I think people find is when you look at what other countries do as far as their governments or their solutions, um, people, I think some people who consider themselves American exceptionalists, they think that the left is trying to say, oh, we should become a carbon copy of this country or this country. And I don't think that's really what they're saying necessarily, sure. but, but that it doesn't preclude taking good ideas from, uh, from other countries, but you have to know what the, you have to have a strong sense of what the idea is. One of my biggest pet peeves is when people say when we talk about healthcare and healthcare reform, they say, Oh, we should do what Europe does. As Europe is one monolithic blob. Every right. country in Europe has its own distinctive healthcare system. They're yeah. all more socialistic in structure than the US healthcare system is, but they're all distinct. And so it's you know, it's you can't just it's like people who say who think Africa is a country rather than a country <laughs> with many countries in it. Right. You know, I think it's, it's fine to look at what other countries have done successfully and are there adaptations that the U.S. could do, but you have to have, you know, it has to be done for a purposeful reason. Yeah. It has to be done with yeah. a really clear blueprint in a feasible way. You can't just say, oh, it, it'd be great yeah. to live in this country, so let's, let's completely change over and be exactly like them.
0: You know what I think America is? I think America is a PC. and I don't be politically correct. I think it's a personal computer. And a personal computer, <laughs> you can go in and mess around with the insides on a Mac, you can't do that. You got to go to the Mac store and have the Mac guy or girl un- open up your laptop and like fuck around with it. You can't do it yourself. This is why that's people- That's why I don't own a Mac. <laughs> yeah, no, no. That's why I've always been um, PC, which is weird to say on a political podcast, a personal computer. Right, I've always been right. a personal computer guy because- I love graphics cards and I'm a, I'm a, I love video games. I can go in and like switch out the NVIDIA graphics card and make it cool with LEDs. I love that. I can actually improve the machine. It's like cars. Like I'm not a car guy, but I'm a a computer guy. And that's kind of what I see America as it's like, we can go in and we can adjust things if things need to be adjusted. There's always going to be pushback to that. I understand that, but at least we can adjust.
1: But every friend of mine who's a Mac owner tells me I need to switch over to a Mac. So that just goes, that just goes to show how, uh, you know, how clannish we get in. Just
0: yeah. on- and I don't think PCs are for everybody because if you don't want to fuck right. around with tech, then you're going to hate it because you're going gonna- like to- We were talking about the, just one,
1: one quick example. No, go ahead. And from from Italy, we were talking, uh, he's, a, he's also a writer on Medium. We were talking about um, the metric system and I was telling him, well, my, my position is that we should keep the imperial units within the United States, but we should also teach students' mathematical skills for converting to the metric system a lot more so than we do. Whereas his position as an Italian person, being one of the majority countries that uses almost exclusively the metric system, he was saying, well, he thinks the US should just switch over entirely. <laughs> so, I mean, we, we disagree on that, but yeah. you know, I think my position is, right. a, or for lack of a better term, a little more liberal than people who would say, let's just keep everything the exact same way it is. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I mean, that's just, that's just one little thing, but that's, that's where I stand. I call it being biradial. Mm-hmm. So as far as can, uh, making, sh- you know, maybe creating a world where, you know, we learn how more easily to translate back and forth between metric and imperial. You know, I'm, I understand, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a big science person. Um, I don't, uh, I was never good at math and science, Me neither. but I um, to my knowledge that you know the metric system has valuable a valuable role in mathematics and science but i'm sorry i i'm not going to give up my feet and in inches
0: <laughs> yeah <same. laughs> so yeah. They, the rest of the world can just deal with that anthony this has been a blast thanks for being here where people? thank find you very you much for having me, me paul i appreciate it oh yeah totally where could people find you online um
1: well there's my i, I can't see it right now but it, it might be in post-production, my Twitter handle should be there. Um, It'll be in the descriptions. Okay, all right. So people are watching this, they'll see it right now, but my Twitter handle is the same as my Medium handle and my Facebook handle. So any of those, those are the three venues that I probably use the most, Facebook, Medium, and Twitter. Not on Instagram, so sorry for all you Instagram folks. (laughs) I'm not there, Um, but those are are probably the, the best platforms.
0: Great. And uh, when are you doing your, where the hell can people find your podcast? I'm going to see you. you well, got the podcast a, hasn't happened yet, element.
1: but when, okay. But once my friend and I do get it launched, I will, you will be one of the first people who I reach out to. And, yeah, definitely. I think share you've, got where a, it's launching. Very, <laughs> you've
0: got a very interesting and unique perspective on all of these subjects. That's why I wanted to have you on. And I think that would, the, the element of surprise. And then you're also very articulate in your ex, uh, explanations of the underlying uh, frustrations that you have with the discussions themselves like you pinpoint problems with the discussions that the left and the right are having about certain topics which is not something that i've ever considered so i like to see that too so good job thanks thanks for being here really appreciate it and uh everybody bye. thanks for listening to the third episode of eyes unclouded god bless america everybody go delete your facebook account because they're evil all right <coughs> bye you may find a way to lift the curse you understand yes